Chapter Two of the Life and Adventures of Alexander Selkirk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Life and Adventures of Alexander Selkirk by John Howell. Chapter Two. Much against his inclination. Alexander remained at Largo until the spring, working with his father, having determined to leave his family as soon as the weather would permit vessels to put to sea. For, at that period, it was the custom to remain in port during the winter months, and not upon any account to risk the dangers of a voyage at that stormy season. With the first ship that required his services, Alexander sailed for England, bent upon returning again to the south seas that place of hope and promise where seamen had gold in abundance for the taking and scarcely did he arrive before the object of his wishes was attained the spanish succession war was raging at that time and such an occasion against the dons was not to be let slip when plunder could be obtained under the sanction of law which before had been sought by setting all law at defiance. Captain Dampier, whose knowledge of the South Seas was great, and his adventures already well known, persuaded several merchants to subscribe a sum towards equipping two vessels to sail into that part of the ocean upon a privateering expedition, being excited by the report of the immense sums of gold got by the buccaneers, and by the lofty schemes of the projector. To these they gave the more implicit faith, as he affirmed they were of easy execution and small risk, and that he could not fail in any of them which he chose to undertake. His first scheme was to go up the river La Plata, as far as Buenos Aires, and capture two or three Spanish galleons, which he said were usually stationed there. If, by this capture, they obtained six hundred thousand pounds, they would return home. Otherwise, they were to cruise off the coast of Peru for the Baldivia ships, which carry great quantities of gold to Lima. If this likewise failed, they were to attempt such rich towns as Captain Dampier should think worth plundering, and afterwards lie in wait for the Acapulco ships, said to be worth thirteen or fourteen million pieces of eight such were the vast designs of this adventurer that these objects might be attained two vessels were equipped the st george mounting twenty-six guns commanded by dampier and the fame also of twenty-six guns commanded by captain pulling and that all might be correct commissions were obtained from his royal highness prince george then lord high admiral of england authorizing them to proceed in a warlike manner against the French and Spaniards. They were well provided and victualled for nine months, and the articles of agreement were no purchase, no pay, or, in other words, the merchants risked the vessels and the crews their limbs and lives. But the object of the voyage was defeated at the very commencement, as Dampier and Pulling unluckily quarreled before they left the Downs. Pulling sailed alone, intending, as he said, to cruise among the Canary Islands, 
but was never afterwards heard of. And the Cinque Ports galley, of about ninety tons, carrying sixteen guns and sixty-three men, was equipped to supply her place. On the 30th April, 1703, the St. George sailed from the Downs, and on the 18th May, anchored at Kinsale, on the coast of Ireland, where, after some delay, she was joined by the Cinque Ports. The two ships had on board the following officers. St. George, William Dampier, Captain, John Clipperton, Chief Mate, William Funnell, Second Mate, John Ballot, Surgeon, Cinque Ports Galley, Charles Pickering, Captain, Thomas Stradling, Lieutenant, Alexander Selkirk, Sailing Master. The consorts, having at length joined company, stayed but a short time at Kinsale, the season being pretty far advanced, and expedition being of the utmost consequence to their success. On the 11th of September they set sail, but the circumstance of Dampier's having been forced to wait so long proved fatal to his grand object, the capture of the galleons. On their arrival at the island of Madeira, on the 25th of the same month, the commanders did not come to anchor, but stood off, only sending their boat on shore for information and necessaries, when, upon its return, they had the mortification to hear that the galleons had arrived safe at Tenerife. The five months during which the St. George had been forced to remain at Kinsale had given the Spaniards time to make preparation, and thereby to defeat entirely the main object for which this expensive armament had been got up. A council was held that same evening, in which the idea of sailing for the river La Plata was relinquished, all agreeing to stand away for some rich town on the Spanish main, which Dampier was to fix upon. They sailed from Madeira on the 28th, in better spirits than could have been expected. Dampier, by his large promises, having awakened new hopes in their breasts. Their bond of union being only avidity for plunder, all went well while there was an immediate prospect of success, but upon any disappointment, the jarring elements of which the crews were composed broke out into murmuring and discontent. On the 30th they saw the islands of Palmas and Ferro, two of the Canaries, but not wishing to stop, they held on for the Cape de Verde islands, and reached Mayo on the 6th of October. Their object was to obtain salt, the chief produce of the island, which might be had for the taking away. They lay off and on during the night, but in the morning the surf ran so high, all along the beach, that no boat could land, so on the 7th they sailed for the island of St. Iago, and anchored in Prior Bay, Port Praia, where they refreshed the men and laid in a stock of water. The inhabitants at that period were a most depraved race, so that they shocked even our adventurers, who were not over-scrupulous. All kinds of vice seemed familiar to them. Captain Dampier, who appears to have been of an arbitrary and unsettled turn of mind, having quarrelled with his first lieutenant, turned him and his servant on shore at twelve o'clock at night with their chests much against their will 
and set sail early in the morning of the 18th October, leaving them on the island. So great was his haste to get away that he sailed without calling a council, or even having made up his own mind, so far as anyone knew, where he was to direct his course. This he did, lest his council should importune him to take his lieutenant on board again, or endeavor to effect a reconciliation. This hasty and rash proceeding was the most unwise thing Dampier could have done, and proved as severe a check to the prosperity of his second object as the desertion of pulling had been to the first. For here began that jarring and want of harmony between the officers, so destructive to the success of all enterprises, and that want of confidence in the crews towards them, which marred all their best contrived schemes. On the 2nd of November, the two vessels crossed the equator. On the 15th of the same month, 14 or 15 of the crew fell sick of a fever, on which day, however, they made the Isle of St. Anne, off the coast of Brazil, where they sent their boats ashore and cut a quantity of wood, but could find no water. On the 24th, they anchored at La Granda, Isla Granda, latitude 30, north an uninhabited island where formerly stood a small town called le grand which belonged to the portuguese where they watered and completed their supply of wood while they lay there captain charles pickering died and was buried on shore at the watering place with every honour they could bestow upon his memory this was a misfortune that could not be repaired and quite destroyed all hopes of success, as he was looked upon by all as the main prop of the expedition. His death was the event which led to Alexander Selkirk's determination rather to remain on some island, perhaps forever secluded from all human society, than sail with his successor, Mr. Stradling, who was appointed in Captain Pickering's place. It was at this time, while brooding over the untoward appearances that were but too evident to every person of judgment, that he had that remarkable dream, in which he was forewarned of the total failure of the expedition and shipwreck of the Cinque ports. From this period he resolved to leave her the first favorable opportunity, which soon occurred. Captain Pickering had not been buried more than a few days, when Dampier again gave loose to his ungovernable temper. He insulted and quarreled with his new first lieutenant, the consequence of which was that the latter and eight of the crew of the St. George, taking their chests on shore with them, left the vessel. How dreadful must the state of society have been on board, when men voluntarily relinquished their ship to risk themselves upon desert islands, among wild beasts, and exposed to the greatest danger of falling into the hands of the Spaniards, under whom their lot must have been perpetual slavery, more to be dreaded even than hunger and wild beasts. Having held a council in which much recrimination and bickering were displayed, it was at length agreed to sail for the island of Juan Fernandez direct, and to touch nowhere in their progress. On the 8th December, they left La Granda. On the 29th, they saw the islands of Sabal de Wert, Falkland Islands. On the 4th January, 1704, in latitude 57 degrees 50 seconds south, 
they had a severe storm of wind from the southwest, which continued for some days. During the gale, the Cinque ports lost sight of the St. George, and, after a stormy passage round Cape Horn, they made the island of Juan Fernandez on the 10th of February, without having seen their consort. They came to an anchor in the Great Bay, Cumberland Bay, where they resolved to wait the arrival of the Commodore. On the 13th, the St. George came into Cumberland Bay, having first anchored in the Little Bay, West Bay, which she found very inconvenient. All the crews were very busy for some time, for here they wooded, watered, hulled, and refitted their ships. While thus employed, a violent quarrel broke out between Captain Stradling and his crew. So high did their disputes arise, and so universal was their discontent, that forty-two out of the sixty men went on shore, resolving not to return on board, so that for two days the vessel rode at anchor almost quite deserted, during which time the sailors wandered up and down the island without coming to any final determination. Whether Alexander was among the revolters or stayed with Stradling on board, Funel does not mention. But that he was with them there is every reason to suppose from what afterwards occurred, and that, moreover, this was the time in which he made those observations upon the island which determined him in his subsequent choice, is very probable. At length, the refractory crew being weary of their situation, Captain Dampier succeeded in reconciling them to their captain, and they returned to their duty. The captains, having resolved to save as much as possible the provisions they had brought from Europe, constantly employed some of the crew in catching goats, which abound in the island. These they ate, boiled with the top of the cabbage palm, and esteemed them delicious food. They likewise killed a great many sea-lions, making oil of the fat to supply their lamps nor did the men dislike to eat it when used in frying their fish. These lions are of a great size. One was killed twenty-three feet in length, fourteen round the body, and seventeen inches deep in the fat. When unsuccessful in pursuing the goats, the men sometimes ate of these animals to save their other provisions, but their principal food was young seals, which they killed in great numbers, and contrived to cook in a variety of ways. Funel says they tasted pretty well to those who were hungry, and had no better food. They continued this manner of life without having come to any resolution what step to take next, until the twenty-ninth February, when a strange sail hove in sight, bearing right into the bay. The crews hurried on board, and by the greatest efforts got up their yards and topmasts in so short a time that they had actually sailed out of the bay before they were perceived by the strangers, who, as soon as they saw them, tacked and stood out to sea. So great was their haste, that the St. George clapped her longboat on her moorings and left it, and five of the Cinque Port's crew, and a negro belonging to the St. George, who had gone to the west end of the island, were likewise left behind, along with all their sails, except those which they had on their masts. The chase continued until evening, during which the pennants of the St. George towed under water, and was cast loose. The boat of the Cinque Ports also broke loose, 
with a man and a dog in it, who were left in this perilous state at the mercy of the wind and waves, so eager were they in the pursuit. About eleven at night, the St. George came up with the enemy, when she proved to be a French ship of about four hundred tons, mounting thirty guns, well provided and manned. They kept well up with her until sunrise, when the action commenced, yard-arm and yard-arm. For seven hours they fought with the most desperate courage, without any decided advantage on either side. At length the fire from the French ship began to slacken, as from the carnage on board they had not men left sufficient to work her guns. Still she fought with determined resolution, but with less effect, and was on the point of yielding when a breeze sprung up, and she made sail, the St. George being in no condition to follow her. The St. George alone had borne the whole brunt of the battle, as the Cinque ports did not fire above a dozen shots when she fell astern, and could never get up again for want of wind. The former lost nine men killed, and had a great many wounded. At this time she had from twenty to thirty men sick, but all who could stand had done their utmost during the fight. They afterwards learned that the French captain, upon his arrival at Lima, sent thirty-two of his men ashore, all more or less wounded in the action. With the greatest alacrity, everything was refitted, and the crew anxiously entreated their officers to follow the French ship and renew the fight, all knowing the bad consequence to the success of the expedition should the Spaniards get information of their arrival before they had made a good prize or two. To this wise request on the part of his men, Dampier could not be prevailed upon to agree. In answer to their proposal, he replied, We do not need to care for merchantmen, as I can make a purchase of five hundred thousand pounds any day of the year. These lofty promises overruled their better judgment, and instead of bearing up after the enemy, they lay to for the Cinque ports, which soon came up, and the two captains agreed in the resolution of letting the enemy escape. But the ship's companies were much displeased to be thus thwarted in their first attempt. Matters being thus arranged, they bore up for Juan Fernandez to collect their anchors, cables, sails, etc., and the seamen they had left, who knew nothing of the cause of their sudden departure. On the 3rd of March they saw the island bearing south, distant nine leagues. The wind being against them, they were forced to beat up, but a calm coming on, the Cinque ports put out her oars and rowed for the land. To her great surprise, she saw two ships at anchor, and was so close upon them that several shots were fired at her as she pulled off to the St. George. They proved to be French South Sea vessels of thirty-six guns each, a force far too great for them to cope with. In this dilemma, a council was called, when they agreed to sail direct for the coast of Peru, leaving their men to their fate and their stores to the enemy. The French had picked up Straddling's boat with the man and dog in it, thus delivering them from the most melancholy situation it is possible to imagine. On their arrival at the island, they took possession of everything that had been left, and made prisoners of three of the five men and the negro. The other two concealed themselves, and remained in the interior until they were taken off upon the return of Captain Stradling. On the 6th of March, 
Dampier and his consort bore away, and on the 11th made the land, coasting along to the northward. On the 14th they passed the island of Capaipo, wishing much to land and obtain refreshment, but, greatly as their necessities required it, they were unable to do so from the loss of their boats in the chase. On the 19th, while the crews were at dinner, the shore distant about ten leagues, with a fresh gale from the east, the water all at once became as red as blood, and as far as the eye could reach had the same appearance. This, at first, alarmed them much. Every man ran upon deck, thinking some great danger was at hand. But on sounding, they found no bottom with 170 fathoms of line. They drew up some of the water and filled a glass with it. For about fifteen minutes it retained its color, after which all the red matter floated upon the top, and the water beneath resumed its usual appearance. This red matter was of a slimy nature, with spots in it, and was concluded to be the spawn of some kind of fish. From latitude sixteen degrees eleven seconds south, where this phenomenon had been witnessed, they continued their run until the twenty-second, when they lay to, being just off Lima. They then furled all their sails, that they might not be seen by the Spaniards, wishing to surprise some of their vessels as they quitted or entered the port. They remained thus until five o'clock next morning, when, no vessel appearing, they again set sail, and were nearly wrecked upon the rocks of Omegas, which they weathered with great difficulty. Still steering northward, they at length saw two strange sails and gave chase. Upon coming up with the sternmost, she proved to be the French ship they had fought with off the island of Fernandez, and was just making the port of Lima. They were all most anxious to prevent her getting in, being confident of making her their prize, as all the men, who were sick at the last encounter, were now perfectly recovered. That she was worth fighting for they had no doubt, exclusive of her provisions, which they stood much in need of. It was hastily agreed, therefore, that the Cinque ports should stand after the other vessel, and the St. George renew her acquaintance with the Frenchman. But here Dampier's unsteadiness again defeated their hopes. Although the enemy was much crippled, the English captain began a harangue about the impropriety of their making a rash attack, and during the debate their antagonist slipped into port, as did also the other vessel. The crews, who were forbearing down upon her at once, and making sure work, were rendered still more discontented by the unseasonable delay that allowed her to escape, and grumbled more and more, but could not help themselves. They still ran to the northward, and next morning, being the twenty-fourth, captured a vessel which made no resistance. She was a Spanish ship of about one hundred fifty tons, laden, as far as they could find, with snuff, Flanders lace, silks, pitch, tar, tobacco, tortoise-shell, beeswax, cinnamon, Jamaica pepper, balsam of Peru, a few planks, and a tolerable sum of money. They kept her with them until the 30th, when, taking out what they thought fit, Dampier discharged her, alleging that if they detained her longer, it would only hinder their greater undertakings. She was, therefore, allowed to depart, 
and stood off for Lima. Next morning, after firing a few shots, they captured another Spanish ship. She was a new vessel, laden with indigo, cochinil, etc. They were, at this time, close off the port of Paita. On the 4th of April, after taking out of the prize several things, she was likewise dismissed, greatly against the wish of the crews, a step which added much to the discontent that had been reigning for a long time in both vessels. The men were forced to content themselves, as they best could, with Dampier's reasons. While he promised speedily to take them to some rich town, where they would at once obtain the object of their voyage, and a full reward for all their sufferings, in which case, as he alleged, it would be wrong to encumber the ships with great quantities of goods. The day after, being the 5th of April, preparations began to be made for the intended attack, the carpenter fitting up the two Spanish longboats with a couple pateraroes in each. On the 11th, being in sight of the island of Gallo, they took a bark of about fifty tons laden with planks. The crew made their escape to the shore in their boats. Dampier kept her to be used in his projected attack. On the twelfth, they anchored at Gallo, which they found uninhabited, and where they remained until the seventeenth. As they were weighing, in order to leave the island, a sail hove in sight standing for it. They remained until she was nearly in, when all the three vessels made sail and took her. She was about fifty tons burden, her master, a half-Indian, bound for the river Tumaco. But mistaking the three consorts for Spaniards, and hoping to purchase provisions from them, he stood too near, and so lost both his money and ship. His misfortune, however, proved the redemption of a Guernsey man, whom the English delivered from a hopeless captivity. This man was made prisoner in the following manner by the Spaniards. Having strayed from his companions, who were employed in cutting logwood in the bay of Campici, he had suffered much and wandered long in the woods before he fell into their hands. After a great deal of harsh treatment, he was sent to Mexico, where he lay in prison two years, after which his spirits were quite broken down, and all hope of ever being released had fled for it was a maxim of the Spaniards never to allow a European sailor who had been in the South Seas, if once in their power, to return to his native country. There was only one way that offered a faint hope of a release from his miserable confinement, which was to turn Catholic. After two years of patient endurance, he at last complied, and was released only on condition that he should remain in Mexico, or go on board any Spanish ship belonging to the South Seas, for they would not permit him to sail in the North Seas, lest he should escape to Europe. He was greatly rejoiced at his deliverance, for, had Dampier's squadron not fallen in with him, he had no prospect but to end his life in bondage. Leaving Gallo, they still kept to the north, when Dampier informed them his design was to surprise Santa Maria, where, he had no doubt, they would get booty enough, this being the first place the gold is brought to from the mines, which are not far distant. He had been there in the year 1680 with the buccaneers, when they crossed the Isthmus of Darien, 
and took it, but got little booty at that time. Captain Harris plundered it afterwards, carrying off 120 pounds weight of gold. It was now much increased in size, and he said there was no doubt it was much richer than when Harris attacked it. Every preparation being made for the enterprise, the last captured sloop was sunk, and her captain promised a better vessel, as likewise a reward to his heart's content, if he would pilot them up to the town. To this he gave a willing consent, and they set sail full of confidence and resolution, passing Cape Corrientes, the ports of Santa Clara, Quemado, Pinas, and others. On the 25th of April they anchored at Point Garachina, the southern extremity of the Gulf of Mexico, to which they were bound. The vessels were left here with sixty of the crew, under strict orders to remain until the return of Dampier and Stradling, who proceeded, in the three Spanish launches, for Santa Maria with one hundred two armed seamen. Finding that the ebb-tide was running very strong out of the river, and that, after long and severe exertions, they made no way against it, they resolved to anchor for the night. The weather was dark and rainy, with a great deal of thunder and lightning, and, there being no shelter in the boats, the men were all wet to the skin, and passed a very disagreeable night. But the hopes of a rich booty kept them in spirits. At length, daylight appeared but the tide still not answering they remained until it turned when a canoe with five indians came within hail and inquired whence they came the indian pilot by dampier's orders answered from panama and invited them on board they replied they would not come and made off dampier then gave orders to fire upon them one of the launches pursuing in vain. This meeting was the worst thing that could have happened, as it was certain these Indians would alarm the towns, that everything valuable would be carried off, and ambuscades laid to intercept them. To remedy this as far as possible, two of the launches set off immediately under the command of Stradling, with twenty-two men in each, and the Indian for their guide, to take the town of Chucadero. The remainder were to follow in the bark, under Dampier and Funel, as soon as the tide would allow. Just as the two launches entered the river of Santa Maria, to proceed towards the town, which lies upon the north side, about three leagues up the stream, a canoe with three Indians came in sight from the Congo River. The English, not having been seen by them, put in behind a point of land near the junction of the currents, and took them before they were aware. As it was getting towards evening, Straddling removed one of the Indians into his launch, and sent the others, with five men in the canoe, to ascertain the position of Chucadero, on the left side, as Dampier had directed. As it soon became quite dark, they could not find it, but, hearing a multitude of dogs barking on the south side, they concluded there must be a town. They stood over, when, just as they reached the shore, the two Indians leaped overboard, and they saw no more of them. One of the men fired after them, the report of whose piece was answered by a gun from the bank. A volley was then given, after which they landed, advanced to the town, and took it without resistance. 
the inhabitants fled at the first alarm having been put on their guard by the five indians who escaped at the mouth of the river the town consisted of about two hundred fifty huts in which was found plenty of provisions around it were a great many pleasant walks shaded with abundance of fruit trees such as plantains bananas etc in the morning the bark not making her appearance straddling sent off the canoe to see what was become of her dampier in the meantime as soon as the tide began to flow got under sail to follow them but missing the mouth of the river he ran past it and finding no way to get in came to an anchor where he remained all night until noon next day when the sea breeze arose he met the canoe coming out and at first he took her for an enemy but soon found out his mistake straddling's men informed him of what had been done and gave him a packet of letters which they had taken from the three indians these he opened and read they were from the president of panama to the governor of santa maria informing him that two hundred fifty englishmen from jamaica had landed on the north side of the isthmus with a design upon his town and that he had sent him a reinforcement of four hundred soldiers seven days before and expected they would arrive before his letters scarce had he done reading when they were again before the town which they had taken it lies upon both sides of the river but bears the same name on either bank here they came to an anchor next afternoon the thirtieth april the three launches and canoe proceeded up the river with eighty-seven men on board for santa maria clipperton and funel with the remainder were left in charge of the bark with orders to remain until their return when within a quarter of a mile of the town they were attacked by three ambuscades from the banks of the river and had one man killed and one wounded they beat the enemy out of their concealments and were upon the point of landing when dampier's vacillating turn of mind detained them his resolution had left him entirely he had the head to plan great attacks but wanted the resolution to carry them through he always lost heart too soon a council was called in which he said it was in vain to land as it was evident the spaniards had got information of their coming and as their custom was upon any alarm to carry their wives and children together with their most valuable effects into the woods it would be of no use to proceed upon which it was resolved to return to the bark at daybreak on the first of may they left the indian town and proceeded down the river to join their ships at point garachina on the sixth instead of the great riches they expected they arrived poorer than they were when they departed so great was their want of provisions that five green plantains were all the allowance that could be afforded for six men in the twenty-four hours and such was the discontent of the crews that it was with difficulty they were kept together at this critical time when their sufferings were so great a vessel came up to where they lay and anchored at twelve o'clock at night just alongside they immediately boarded and took her without any resistance and a most welcome prize she proved being laden with flour sugar brandy and wine with about thirty tons of marmalade of quinces a quantity of salt and some tons of linen and woolen cloth 
Thus, all at once, they passed from the greatest want to unbounded plenty, and could have victualled the ships for four or five years. Funel was put on board the prize in behalf of Dampier and his company, Alexander Selkirk in behalf of Stradling and his crew. The bark was now sunk, and with their new capture they ran across the Bay of Panama and got among the King or Pearl Islands. On the 14th they were near Tobago, and brought it to bear north by east, distant three leagues, and here they anchored to rummage their prize. The four following days they were busy taking out provisions such as brandy, wine, sugar, flour, etc. A small bark hove in sight on the 18th. The longboat and a canoe were sent after her, and took her. All they got from her was a small sum of money. Captain Stradling kept her for himself. Some of the passengers told the captains that there were $80,000 concealed on board, lying at the bottom in the run of the ship, having been smuggled on board. This Dampier would not believe, and was unwilling to be detained so long as would be necessary to turn over the goods. He had now another great design in his head, and said that loss of time would spoil all. Having, therefore, taken out what provisions he chose, she was dismissed. This was so much against the wishes of Stradling that a quarrel ensued, and words ran so high that they formed the resolution to separate, and give the men their choice to go in any of the ships they had a mind. In consequence of this agreement, five men left Dampier and came on board the Cinque Ports, and five left Stradling for the St. George. On the 19th of May, the two ships parted company never to meet again. Selkirk remained with Stradling, being no doubt convinced by this time that no money was to be got under Dampier's command, and that no enterprise would succeed where he was the leader. From this period until the end of August, the Cinque ports kept cruising along the shores of Mexico, or among the islands, without any success, the St. George having gone to the coast of Peru. During this period, a violent quarrel arose between Honest Selkirk, as Harris calls our hero, and Captain Stradling. So high did their dispute arise, that Selkirk resolved to leave the vessel, whatever might be the consequence. At length, want of provisions and the crazy state of the ship compelled Stradling to sail for the island of Juan Fernandez to refit. He was in hopes of recovering the stores and men which they had left there at the commencement of their cruise in these seas, in which, as has been already remarked, he was disappointed, as the two French whalers had taken away everything, and he only recovered two of his men, who had been successful in concealing themselves. Their account of the manner in which they had spent their time fixed the resolution that Selkirk had formed some time before, to leave the ship and remain upon the island. From the beginning to the end of September, the vessel remained undergoing repairs. The disagreement, instead of being made up, became greater every day, and strengthened the resolution which Selkirk had made to leave the vessel. Just before getting under way, he was landed with all his effects, and he leaped on shore with a faint sensation of freedom and joy. He shook hands with his comrades, and bade them adieu, in a hearty manner, 
while straddling sat in the boat urging their return to the ship, which order they instantly obeyed. But no sooner did the sound of their oars, as they left the beach, fall on his ears, than the horrors of being left alone, cut off from all human society, perhaps forever, rushed upon his mind. His heart sunk within him, and all his resolution failed. He rushed into the water, and implored them to return and take him on board with them. To all his entreaties, Stradling turned a deaf ear, and even mocked his despair, denouncing the choice he had made of remaining upon the island as rank mutiny, and describing his present situation as the most proper state for such a fellow, where his example would not affect others. End of chapter 2 Recording by James K. White Chula Vista.